Good morning. Let's pray together. Lord, your word tells us that all scripture is inspired by you, breathed out by you, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Father, we love your word. We desire not only to understand it, but to stand under it. I pray, Lord, that your word would be clear to us this morning, that as I bring your word, it would be with a reverence for your word that shows up in our lives as we seek to live it out. And so, Father, speak to us through your word. We are listening. We want to hear from you that we might be more conformed to the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we begin this morning with a retraction. Did any of you catch what I did last week? Uh, I cited the parable of the weeds last week when I was talking about the church as a mixed bag of various different kinds of people. Uh, as I studied the passage from 2 Timothy chapter 2, I thought about that parable. And uh, so I found it in Matthew 13. I read it, and then I included it, thinking Jesus was talking there about the church. What I overlooked was the fact that Jesus explained the parable a few paragraphs later in the same chapter. And he wasn't describing the church with weeds and wheat both growing at the same time. He was describing the world. And so I uh, included that to my error. And uh, I think I could have made the point just straight from 2 Timothy that the church is a mixed bag. I think that's the point of what Paul is saying about this great house of God that has different vessels in it. But I thought including this from Jesus would enrich our understanding. I misunderstood what he meant by the field, though, and that changed the point of the parable. We want to be absolutely accurate when we are handling God's word. Uh, details matter. Nobody gets a pass, not even your pastor. The pulpit does not stand three feet above contradiction. There was an old Scottish practice that uh, when the pastor would finish his sermon, he would descend the stairs from the pulpit and his elders would be seated in the front row and he would go and confer with the elders and if what he said was okay, he could pronounce the benediction. If it wasn't, he would go back up those stairs and set it straight and then he could pronounce the benediction. I think that's good. Uh, we want to handle the word of God accurately, and we can help each other do that, me included. So, now for this week's passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3. We ended last week's study with the realization that God can do what we can't do in terms of changing people's hearts. At the end of the passage we looked at last week, we come upon these words in, in verse 25 and 26 when he's speaking about some people who are, are doing the wrong thing. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. Who grants repentance? 
God does. God may perhaps, not a certain thing, may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after having been captured by him to do his will. God may grant them repentance. This week's passage begins with the word but. But he may not. He may not. Paul uh, speaks about living in times of difficulty in these days. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And he goes on to describe certain people who make their presence known in the last days. And then, when we look at that, it only takes a simple reading of the text to figure out that what Paul's talking about is something that is happening in the very time that he is writing to Timothy. So, the last days have come. Take a look at at Acts chapter 2, if you will. Flip over to Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 16 and 17. The setting is this. It's the day of Pentecost. God has poured out the Holy Spirit, and people are, are speaking in tongues, and folks in Jerusalem are looking at that and saying, well, they're all drunk. It's only nine in the morning. They're all drunk already. That's crazy. And Peter stands up and speaks into that situation and says, no, they're not drunk. This is what the prophet Joel told us would happen. And he cites the prophet Joel. Verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. What the prophet Joel talked about when he spoke of the last days is here. This is that. And so we are in the last days. We have been in this period called the last days since Jesus came, and we will be in the last days until he comes again. So Paul's saying, in the light of living in these last days, we shouldn't be surprised when things are going on like the things that he spoke of in the passage last week at the end of chapter 2, that people were doing uh, some wrong things, and uh, it is a part of this particular period of history known as the last days. Peter said something similar in 1 Peter 4.12 when he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. You've been warned. This is what is going to happen in those times. And Paul is saying here, understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. In these last days, there will be times or periods of great difficulty. Like a ship on a voyage that experiences storms along the way, God's people will not always have smooth sailing. Difficult times, the ESV says. King James and New King James says perilous times. NIV says terrible times. New Living says very difficult times. 
Christian Standard says hard times. The word is used in secular Greek to describe something that is violent or dangerous. The only other place that it's used in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, where it describes two demoniacs who were so fierce that people couldn't come near them. Fierce times, difficult times, terrible times. Paul's saying those times, those periods will come in these last days. And we need to be prepared for them. And Timothy was going through one at the time Paul wrote. Now, note then that, that Paul wasn't just saying this to let Timothy or us know of something that was going to be happening far in the future. He wrote it to help Timothy stand strong in the middle of one of these seasons, one of these periods of difficult, hard times. If you look at verse 5, he, he gives a warning about these people and says, avoid them. If he's saying avoid them, then they must be there when Timothy is, uh, is leading in the church. Difficult times. So if Paul and Timothy were living in the last days, where are we? We're in the last days as well. There's a finality to that phrase, last days. Let's us know that things won't go on the way they are indefinitely. There is an end coming to human history as we know it, and it is getting closer. It should give us a sense of perspective. It should encourage us to make the most of the time that we still have. Last days. The anticipation of the end does a couple of things for us. One is it gives us a sense of urgency. We're nearing the end of football season. What happens in the last two minutes of a football game? Uh, the a referee gives a warning to the bench that, uh, that the end is coming. There's a two-minute warning. The end is near. And so the players play with everything they've got left in them. There's a sense of urgency because the end is coming. Another thing that anticipation of the end does for us, it can help us to endure. I, uh, I've had some work done on a bum shoulder and there's a sports doc who's been uh, breaking up some scar tissue in the shoulder. It's a painful process. And he kind of watches my face while he does it. And when it appears to him that I'm at about the point of all I can take, he begins to count backwards from five. It gives him five more seconds uh, to do this procedure but it also gives me the sense that the end is coming quickly and I can hang on just that much longer. Anticipation of the end. It gives us a sense of urgency and it helps us to endure. Now, set in the context of the challenges Timothy's facing in the church at Ephesus, the characteristics that Paul now gives, describing these people, gives an overall picture of the kind of opposition Timothy can anticipate, and in fact, opposition that he was currently enduring. And because we're in the last days as well, we can expect the same ourselves. So Paul presents a list of things that describe 
people living in the last days. Let's uh, read that again. Look at verses two through five. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. What a list. Amazing list. Paul presents a a list with no fewer than 19 descriptions of people living in the last days. It's a fascinating list. It would take us all day to unpack it. But do look at how he begins the list in verse 2 and what he says at the end of verse 4 because I think those two things give us bookends on that list that describe everything in between. In verse 2, They're described as lovers of self. In verse 4, they are that rather than lovers of God. Lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Those are the bookends that describe the 17 things he speaks of in between. Now, I won't unpack all of those, but just think about the sheer number of them. It's a staggering thing that Paul would say so much about them, but that's what happens when people are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Terrible things happen when people are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And we are living in a culture that promotes self-love over love for God. The old Whitney Houston song, The Greatest Love of All, remember that one? is not speaking about Christ and what he did for us. What she is describing there is self-love. The greatest love of all is learning to love yourself, she says. But when we can grow in our love for God, then our love for self and all other loves shrink down to their proper perspective. One of the most important things your church can do for you is to help you grow in your love for God. According to Jesus, that is the first and greatest commandment, to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And he says the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. How many commandments are there? There are two. There are not three. Love God, love neighbor. The love for self is not a part of the commandment. It is an assumption that you love yourself. We do. We do. So apply that then to your love for others and for God. Verse 5 tells us that these people who are motivated by self-love rather than love for God can put on a pretty good show of spirituality. They can talk a pretty good game. But their faith isn't shaping or changing their lives. Look at uh, verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. There's no transformation of their lives. This process of sanctification we talked about last week isn't happening. They're not becoming more and more like Jesus. Jesus. 
So this passage is doing more than describing the spirit of the age, though it does a pretty good job of that. It's saying that the spirit of the age has found its way into the church. These are the people that Paul talked about in 1 Timothy, and he's still having to talk about now in 2 Timothy. And so when Paul says, avoid them, who's he talking about? He's not talking about unbelievers outside of the church. We need to have contact with the unbelieving world. We need to be salt and light. Jesus has commissioned us to be that. What Paul is saying is that it's professing Christians who behave this way, motivated by self-love rather than love for God, that we need to avoid. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 9, Paul says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So it's not the unbelieving world we're to cut ourselves off from. They need our influence. They need our witness. But it's people who claim the name of Christ who behave this way that we need to distance ourselves from. What Paul does in these descriptions in verses 2 through 5 is he talks about what they are like. What he does then in verses 6 and 7 is he goes on to tell us what they do. Look at 6 and 7. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. What they do, they creep. Uh, it's an interesting word. Uh, literally, they, they sneak into homes. The... Um, it, there, there's a, a stealth described here. They, they creep into homes. Uh, one translation says they worm their way in. It's a sneaky sort of thing, and they pick off the vulnerable. These uh, houses that they, they enter, literally uh, the houses, uh, could be the homes that the church was meeting in. Uh, the church was structured around house churches. Could be that they were infiltrating those and picking off the vulnerable there. It could also be that these were people whose husbands were off at work during the day and they could come and have influence with them. It's a strategy that the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons have been using quite effectively for a long time. And so they would be appealing to people who Paul describes as weak, burdened, and led astray, always learning and never arriving at the truth. 
Last week we talked about the Areopagus in Athens where Paul was invited to speak because they always wanted to learn what was the newest thing. This is the sort of person, the, the person who is curious, wants to hear the latest thing and may have the financial means to support these false teachers to keep them supplied. And so uh, these women seemed to be able to grasp one spiritual truth until another idea came along that appealed to them more. They were curious and they were vulnerable. And what do these teachers do with these vulnerable people? Well, verse 8 tells us they teach things opposed to the truth. Look at verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Janus and Jambres, who are they? You won't find their names anywhere else in the Bible. But according to Jewish tradition... These were two of the sorcerers in Pharaoh's court who could replicate some of the things that Moses was doing by the power of God. The difference is Moses did these things by the power of God, and these sorcerers did them by deception and trickery. That's what's going on in Ephesus as these men creep into the houses and prey on the vulnerable. Put yourself in that situation. Put yourself in that setting. Imagine yourself in Timothy's shoes. This has got to look pretty dark. The people that Paul warned you about three years ago when he wrote 1 Timothy are still there. They're still exerting influence. They're still holding sway. Uh, the one of them, Hymenaeus, was excommunicated three years ago. He's still there. He's still having influence in the church. Timothy needed some assurance. And so Paul gives it in verse 9. He says, They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men, Janus and Jambres. They won't succeed. It won't succeed. God's truth will triumph. And so with that assurance, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you are equipped to lead this church through the difficulty. And that equipping comes down to a couple of things that Paul reminds Timothy of. And the first is Paul's own example in verse 10 and verse 11. He says, you, however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. In all of Timothy's travels with Paul, Timothy had seen Paul in action He had seen Paul's character time and time again. And more than seeing Paul's life, he learned from it and he followed it. He's seen Paul bear up under persecution, even being stoned in Timothy's hometown of Lystra. And he reminds Timothy in verse 12, the persecution is part and parcel of a life that honors Christ. Look at verse 12. 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a part of it. We can expect opposition if we're in Christ and also living in this world. We don't go looking for it, but we should expect it. We should anticipate it. We shouldn't be surprised when it comes our way. So Paul reminds Timothy of the example that he has set for him. The other thing that he reminds him of is the solid foundation that he has in the word of God, verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent equipped for every good work. Timothy was trained in the scriptures from childhood by a godly mother and a godly grandmother. And that training prepared him to recognize and to respond to the truth of the gospel when Paul came and presented it. And it's the word of God that is going to continue then to guide him through the challenges that he are facing the church that he's leading. Stick with the word, Timothy. It will equip you thoroughly. So what is it about the word of God that can give Timothy the confidence that it equips him thoroughly? Well, verses 16 and 17 tell us. First, it's God-breathed. It's God-breathed. Its source is God. It's been breathed out by him to its human authors. Yes, this book was written by men, but it is much, much more than human writings. It reflects the very character of God, and it reveals his will for our lives. It's God-breathed. The other thing that he says is it's profitable for four things that he goes on to spell out. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Teaching is, is this good doctrine that we have that the church needs. In light of the teaching of the people uh, who were wreaking havoc in the Ephesian church, the church would need sound doctrine based solely on the word of God. God's word shows us God's will and his way. And similarly for us, if we walk according to the word, we can have confidence that we are on the right path. Reproof is pointing out when we leave that path, catching us up short, showing us our error. Correction is what brings us back onto the path. It brings us back to where we need to be. And training in righteousness helps us to stay on that right path. The word implies moral training that leads to righteous living. So on this, this road of righteousness that God wants us to walk, uh, we need sound doctrine, good teaching. We need the reproof of God's word that points out our error. We need to be corrected and brought back to the right path and then taught how to live on it. And the net effect 
is complete equipping. Look at verse 17. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul's saying, Timothy, you are more equipped than you know. You followed my teaching, you followed my example, and you have been trained in the word of God. So now continue in it. God has been equipping you for this moment your whole life long. Let me share just a couple words of application as we wrap up. First, there are lots of issues in our culture today that people are getting fired up about, that people are dividing over. Uh, We're being taught by our culture to cancel people who don't agree with us. We find ourselves canceled frequently. How do you sort all of that out and come to any conclusion? I think Paul has given us three tests in this passage. The first is the test of character. The test of character. We saw uh, that uh, it, in, in the, the qualifications for elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when we were there. Character counts. Character is the foundation uh, of a person's credibility. Um, God reshapes our character through the process of sanctification. We looked at that last week. And so Paul had seen Timothy, I'm sorry, Timothy had seen Paul's character in action over 20 years of traveling with him. And they did ministry together. Paul could, Timothy could see Paul's character. And Paul then warned Timothy about the character of those who were wreaking havoc in the church that Timothy was leading. All of those things he said in verses 2 through 5 about them speak of their character. They had a lousy track record when it came to character. And at the root of it all is that they were lovers of self rather than lovers of God. So check the character of those who would compete for your attention. And we need to humbly examine our own character as well. The test of character is the first test I see in this passage. The second flows out of it. It's the test of actions. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. And the fact of the matter is the false teachers had a lousy track record in their actions as well as in their character. One flows right out of the other. These were the people creeping into households and picking off the vulnerable, deceiving them. Paul, on the other hand, was known by his actions to be faithful, to be steadfast, even in the midst of persecution for Christ's sake. So look at the actions of the people competing for your attention as well. What do those actions tell you? Do they reflect godly people? And that leads us to the third test, and that is the test of Scripture. Scripture is God-breathed, and so it is unchanging. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. It can be counted on to show us the right path, to point out when we've strayed from it, to put us back on the right path, and to train us to stay on it. Three tests, then. Test of character, the test of actions, and the test of Scripture. Second, don't be discouraged 
when people seem to reflect the spirit of the age. We've been warned it's going to happen. It's a sign of the times. Instead, let it remind you that we're living in the last days. Let it give you a sense of urgency. Let it help you to endure. And know that God has equipped you to handle these difficult times more than you know. Be faithful. Follow the example of the godly influences in your life and stick to the word of God. Expect challenge and know that God has equipped you better than you know. And with that equipping, we can face those challenges with confidence. You'll find some questions for further thought in your program. I hope you'll be able to make use of those this week as you seek to apply God's word in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that even in the tumultuous times we're living in, you have warned us, you have prepared us, and you have equipped us to be more than conquerors in the midst of all of the difficulties. So Father, I pray that you would help us to focus on the examples of godliness that you have given us in other people that have uh, shown endurance in the midst of difficulty themselves. And we thank you that you have given us your inerrant word that guides us through these times. Help us to be faithful to it. Help us to handle it carefully, accurately. Help us to live it out in our lives for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.